Good day. <laughs> Good day. It's not really morning for Good them. Good day to you all. Good day, everyone. Uh, my name is Father Peter Moses. My name is Dr. Scott Powell. And we're the Lanky Guys. You are listening to the Word on the Hill podcast. Um, I uh, I have to say. Say it. Scott, Scott and I, basically, we have these conversations, and Scott... Um, you revealed me to me this morning Uh-oh. that uh, oh I shouldn't that my, have, I didn't want you to hear that that my life I revealed is, it to Patty Quinn I didn't want you to hear is that my my life is is kind of integrated in like a real way that like whatever is really going on in my life I'm gonna bring up in the podcast and by really going on it's but whatever is happening in my mind at the current moment yeah <laughs> which which is is always a fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> thing to watch which, which it's funny and it always it shows up in the podcast in some capacity like if you're interested in clouds that week it'll show up in the podcast or ham radios or jeeps or camino maps kites. or fish or kites i'm dog sitting right now yes yeah and uh we're heading into the 16th sunday in ordinary time is that where we are 16th sunday in ordinary time yep and our readings this week we're just jumping in. Well, this is probably for the best. Yeah, I mean, because like I could talk about a lot of stuff that that's in my brain. I know, and it'd be hard to unpack all that, all the Harry Potter, dude, pseudo liturgy. I wasn't going to. I wasn't. I wasn't going to bring know, up Harry I, Potter. Well, because because basically what happened is I I was reading in the news today that there's this podcast that what they do is basically walk through people through, um, Lexio Divina on Harry Potter. <laughs> So they use the same method of Lexia Divina that we use to reflect on the scriptures to, oh as, as secularists to discover good morals in Harry Potter. Which is silly sounding because it's Harry Potter, but it just keeps making me think how desperately people want something. We want some semblance of liturgy and scripture and these things that we've always had, but people are so closed off to the truths of the gospel and the church, but there's still this human need for something of that. Right. You know what I mean? The fact that people are actually using Lexio Divina to unpack Harry Potter just tells me that you guys are so hungry. We are all so hungry for the truth. And so we're always searching for it in all sorts of bad places. Not bad place. I mean, that's just a neutral place, I guess. I mean, depending on your feelings on Harry Potter. Yeah. yeah. But it shows that there is this need for that. Absolutely. And, uh, and I hung out with my high school friends over the weekend. My friend Mark got married. Uh, and uh, at their at their wedding, they did they did like a reading from Don Toretto, uh, from the letter of Don Toretto, Saint which is Vin Diesel, pray, pray for us. And so they they had like these elements of like liturgy. that was a reference to the Fast and the Furious. If you are like me and you didn't catch yeah. Don Toretto, and was. so they had him, like they had it in like this. <clears throat> that's rough. In this really interesting way, where they're like actually trying to derive meaning out of pop culture. Mm. Which is not and, ironically or ironically. Um, this is a little, little bit of a mixture. Well, what is irony? Jeez, <laughs> here we go. Uh, I, 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 are you looking for a strict definition? Because I'm, yeah, I'm struggling to give you one. I'll be honest with you. Um, irony is a rhetorical device uh, in which uh, a, uh, an event in what appears on the surface uh, to be the case differs from what is actually the case. It's like rain on your wedding day. Right. It's kind of like, it's like 10,000 spoons when, when all you need is a knife. Dude. The, wow. It's like meeting the man of your dreams and then meeting his beautiful wife. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? <laughs> oh, oh, oh okay. my gosh. Dude, that was actually really amazing. Thanks, man. 
I just, I just like, I can't, I can't, I'm not going to give the reference for anybody <laughs> because you just, you just like, if you don't know, if you don't have the ears to hear. Ah, uh, that's a good segue into the, well, the gospel, which we're not going yeah, to get yeah, to for a little But bit. our first reading today is wisdom. Wisdom, be attentive. Wisdom, be attentive. Chapter 12, verses 13, um, skipping to 16 to 19 V. I don't have the reference to V. I don't know why. Where Mine literally says 19V. <laughs> Seriously? I don't have that I, reference I was, on the I USCCB was, website. I was like, dude, if na- chapter 19 That's real. is super, is that long that you have to go to section wow. V of the verse? Yikes. I wonder, well, if, if, somebody, I wonder if somebody dictated it. Because um, V and B actually can be transposed. Oh, and they had a cold. <laughs> All right, our response oil psalm coming from Psalm 86, verses 5 through 6, 9 through 10, 15 through 16. And the response is from 5a. Our second reading is of Romans. This this is a short reading. Little one. Chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Just two. And our gospel is coming from Matthew, chapter 13, verses 24 through 43. Which is hard because it feels almost palindromic, but it's not. But it's not. 24, 24 to 43. So wisdom, um, dude, okay. I'm, I'm looking for this. And so wisdom, <coughs> if I remember right, Scott, please okay. correct me if I'm wrong. I Wis- will. Wisdom is Believe a, me, I will. It's <laughs> a series of sayings okay. uh, where uh, for the priests, or is that Sirach? Yeah, that's Sirach. Well, it's probably Sirach. I don't know the end of your sentence. Um, so this is just a, a series of training methods. Train, is this like a training book for priests, or is it just a book of parables? It's really just, it's as simple as that. We're not, I mean, yeah, the intentionality of the Book of Wisdom is a little bit unclear to me. Um, it seems to be a gathering of, of wise things. So it's part of what, what's called the Deuterocanonical Books. So it's actually not included in our Protestant friends' Bibles. Deutero. Deuterocanonical. What does Deutero mean? Second. And what does canonical mean? Um, a gathering of, of writings. So the canon of Scripture, right, is all the books of the Bible put together. Um, so, so here's, here's, here's a good way to think about so, it. So is a cannon like, like on a ship, like the bark of Peter, and then it like shoots out? <laughs> I can't think of it. <laughs> I can't, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go from You do it. Okay. Yeah, Etymologically, they're different words. Okay. But I, I know, mean, I know what you're trying to they're go. They're homophones. Yes, they are homophones, but linguistically far from each other. Yes. Okay. Deuterocanonical though. So sometimes these are called the apocryphal books. Which, if you guys have ever heard the, so again, Protestant Bibles are shorter than Catholic Bibles. We have a few books in the Old Testament that Catholic or that, that Protestants do not. Um, I know for, why. For all, well, so do I. <laughs> That's good. Do the people that were listening? I don't right know, now? and I don't know if I want to unpack the whole thing. But but here's what I'll say. So if you hear them call apocryphal books, and I don't know if you know this, apocryphal, it, it's actually kind of a, an insult to them. Yes. Um, it's not a positive way of referring to those books, no. and it's a way that sort of. People who uh, are not a fan of the church's use of these books sort of slam us. They're, they're hidden, they're veiled, apocryphal in the sense that they're, they're like the secret hidden gospels, that kind of thing. It's not a positive term. Deuterocanon is actually a better term. But so, still negative. No, it's not. I, I think it's actually perfectly neutral. S- second canon? Yeah, well, here's why. Here's why it's, it's r- legitimate. The proto-canon, proto means first, right? So, right? so here's where the deuterocanonical books come from. So wisdom, Sirach. Um, what else? Maccabees, uh, Tobit, some of these books, right? And not all of them, but but here here's what happens. So, um, you have what we call the proto canon, which is the Torah, the first five books. You have the historical books like Joshua and Samuel and Kings and all these chronicles, the Psalms, the Proverbs, all of these books, right? 
So uh, after Israel went off into exile, when Babylon conquered Israel and they were taken off into slavery, remember eventually Israel was free. The Babylonians were taken over by the Medo-Persians who were eventually taken over by the Greeks. So all these years have gone by and Israel uh, is never free after, after the exile until Jesus comes really. But they're, they're always, you know, in some level or another of being occupied by someone. So during the reign of the Greek empire, uh, the Greeks, one of the things the Greeks are famous for is wisdom, right? Philosophy, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, all these things. So one of the things early on, in the, and the Greeks turned pretty bad. The book of Maccabees is all about when the Greeks turned really, really mean. But prior to that, they were fairly benevolent. And one of the things the Greeks were really into was this idea that all of the wisdom of the world ought to be shared. And so the Greeks founded the library in Alexandria, which is actually one of the seven wonders of the world. It's, it's gone now. But mm-hmm. they, they said, we're going to make this big library in northern Africa in Alexandria. They, did, and, they needed a better fire suppression system. I'm just saying. Um, Thanks, fire department. Yeah, seriously. I have no witty response to that. That's okay. It, just, it, it burned down. It was, <laughs> very, it was very sad. One of the <laughs> biggest <laughs> human tragedies. And, anyway, um, so, but they, they said, we want to take everybody within our empire, uh, and we want them to bring their holy books and their writings and their histories and all of their knowledge. And we want to put it all into Greek and the Greek language and put it in this library. So all of human wisdom and knowledge and history is accessible to everybody, which is a brilliant idea. So they called upon the Jewish people in Israel to come up and bring their holy books. So the tradition says that 70 elders went up from Israel to Alexandria to translate all of the books of the Bible into Greek so that they could put it in this library. And so 70, um, Septuagint is where we get, it was derived from the name, the word 70. Yep. So the 70 elders went and translated the Bible. Um, all the Bible was at that point was those books we just talked about. So the Torah, the, the historical books, Joshua, Judges, all those, the Proverbs, the Psalms, all these books, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they went and they translated the proto-canon, the first of the Bible, into the Greek language. And that's where we get the Greek Bible, which is the Bible that Jesus appears to be using based on the way that he says certain things. So he's using the Septuagint. Which but, is interesting because, too, um, uh, like... In the in the same way that like right now, if you're going to do business in the world, English is very yep. helpful. Right. So yep. so like you go to Germans learn English. Uh, I mean, in a pretty universal capacity. Absolutely. You, you know what I mean? You, you English in in a certain sense has become the language of business. Absolutely. Um. Uh, and so what happens is that that was similar in the ancient days, but it was with Greek. Greek. So, and, and even up until the time of Jesus, much later, they were still speaking. Well, this is why all the Gospels were written in Greek, because it was the language of the time. Right. right. Um, but what happened was when those elders were up in Alexandria, they actually penned some other books as well. And apparently they brought with them other traditions and books and writings that had been floating around and they compiled them together. So the Book of Wisdom was put together during that time, as was... Um, the Maccabean history. Well, the Maccabean history hadn't happened yet. Oh, That's okay. going to happen later on. So basically, when they go up to Alexander, they put into Greek the Bible as it stood. But the Bible wasn't finished being written yet because the story of the Maccabees hasn't happened yet. Tobit hasn't taken place yet. They compiled all these books of wisdom. And so we call all of those other books that were compiled a little bit later on the Deuterocanon. They were the second one. It was round two. Still canonical, still God's writing. It's still the inspired word of God. But some of those things just hadn't happened yet. And so, and then I, I like, I mean, I, nobody refers to it this way, but sometimes in my mind, I think of the New Testament as the Tridocanon. It's the third part of the canon. So really, there's three parts of the Bible because God is unveiling these things and writing these histories as we go on. 
So that's why Deuterocanon, I don't think that's a negative term. Saying they're apocryphal, they're like hidden and secret, that's negative sounding. But Deuterocanon is just the second round of God's revelation. Right. So, okay, all of that is to say the Book of Wisdom comes out of that period. And the reason that that history is actually rather important is to, when we read through what wisdom is saying this week, if you remember kind of what's going on, it sort of matters. And so the Book of Wisdom, what's it about? It's about... Basically, it's a, a lot of pieces of wisdom. It's it's written, uh, it's attributed to Solomon, uh, the Miratorian canon, which is a very early gathering of the books of the Bible, uh, attributes it to Solomon's friends. Nobody's exactly sure who wrote it. It's a, it's a number of writings that are brought together. Um, but it really, uh, it, it's about, it's a critique of idolatry. It's doing two things. It's critiquing idolatry and saying that it's wrong and it's against wisdom to seek God in the wrong things. And it also is speaking about the sacramentality of creation, that creation is good. It speaks to God. It reveals who God is. But if we take it too far, we fall into worshiping his creation and missing the God who created those things. And the reason I think that that's an important theme is because, well, what's happening in Israel? Well, what's happening in Israel is they've gone off into exile. They have come back to Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple. They've kind of reestablished their lives. But as far as anyone's concerned, the presence of God has never returned to them. Remember, the temple was built to be God's dwelling place. And when Solomon originally built the temple, uh, after David conceived of it, and Solomon built it, the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, went inside of it, in the midst of it. And they believe God's presence literally dwelt with them. Right before the exile, when the Babylonians came and destroyed everything, they saw God's presence leave them. And he took off. And then they're hauled off into exile. And it's this question of, has God abandoned us? Where has he gone? We're totally hosed now. And, and hey, then, hoser. Hey, hoser. and then they come back to the land, they rebuild the temple, they establish their lives again, but everyone understands, well, our exile is not really done because we don't have our kingdom again. We don't have the land that God promised us. We're not a blessing to all the nations and his presence has never returned. So the question of this part of the Old Testament is, how do you live a faithful life when it certainly seems like God Maybe hasn't, I mean, a lot of people think that God had abandoned them, but at least in the, in the most positive way to think of it, when God has sort of hidden himself. How do you find God when God's hidden? He's not there anymore. He's not in the temple. We can't access him in the way that we used to. So what do we do? Well, what do we have left? Even when they're off in exile, what do they have? Well, we still have creation. And even the book of the Psalms speaks to this. Look, You can watch the trajectory of the sun rising in the east and crossing the sky perfectly to the west. That reminds us of the consistency of God and how he's always there and it's constant. There's no part of the earth that the sun's rays don't heat, just like there's no part of our lives that God's uh, love doesn't touch. Creation itself is a testament to God. And in the absence of the trappings of our faith and our liturgy and the tabernacle and the temple and all the things that we used to look to to see God, well, what are we left with? Well, we're left with the created world that he gave us, which is in a certain sense, a temple to his glory, which is what the book of wisdom is all about. It's about finding God when he's hidden himself, Mm. finding God when all seems lost, finding God when our eyes are blinded to the things we used to have. And I mean, this period in Israel's history, I always liken to the idea, you know, imagine as a Catholic, um, someone came in and literally killed all the priests and the popes, uh, pope and the bishops. And there's no sacraments being offered. There's no Eucharist left. There's no confessions available. Everything that we think of, or mainly the things that we think of that means to be a Catholic, are inaccessible to us. We can't go to Mass. There's no Eucharist. There's no sacraments anymore. There's no priests. There's no priests. So what do you do? Right. Well, 
And this is what Israel is left with. Well, we're left with the Torah. We have his word and we have the created world that he gave us, which speaks to his glory. We still see him. We have to look a little bit harder. We have to work a little bit harder to find him, but he's there. And that's what this reading is all about. There's no God besides the uh, There's no God besides you who have the care of all. And you show um, that you need to show that you need <laughs> that you need show you have not unjustly condemned. You haven't condemned us. Your might is the source of justice. It feels dark. It feels like you've left us, but you haven't abandoned us. You're still there. Your mercy is still present. You're still available. Even when your power is disbelieved. Actually, this line, I was reading through this this morning, and I mean, this is a, a really powerful meditation. Yeah. Um, your might is the source of justice. Your mastery over all things makes you lenient to all for you show your might when the perception of your power is disbelieved. And that's the line I keep kind of coming back to and reflecting. I couldn't get past that line. You show your might when the perfection of your power is disbelieved, mm. which speaks to even what you were talking about with, with Harry Potter and these pseudo liturgies and just this world that is desperately seeking something. We live in a time when the power of God is disbelieved. Right. People don't believe in the power of God. What does wisdom say? Um, your might, you show your might when the perfection of your power is disbelieved. God is sometimes the mightiest and shows his might the strongest when his power is not believed. Which and is, we live in a time of a crisis of faith. Right, which is, which is it's interesting because, like, I'll tell you, if somebody, um, like, you think of somebody who has physical power. Yeah. You know, like, oh. Like co- me. Like Scott. So I'm like, I'm like, hey, weak, hey, chicken. Hey. Hey, what's up, weak, weak sauce? What do you got going? Weak sauce. You know, thanks br- 2004. Bring it, Mr. Weak Sauce. Like, like the temptation is an exaggeration and, um, uh, and like, like what we think of in a dis- display of power mm. is, is actually pretty ugly. We, we, yeah. we, we're not like we, you think of, you know, I, I think of North Korea putting out all their military and firing right. ICBMs, right. saying, like, oh, you wouldn't just believe my power. Look how strong we are. Look how strong we are. Yeah. But but it's really interesting because like I I mean I don't mean to jump ahead but the perfection of power is not is is not something that like like we could be tempted even in this moment to say oh God is going to come and bring the lightning bolts and bring all the hurt. In fact, right. it's it's quite the opposite, right. and, and that's actually where we look to Jesus Christ and we say, yes. oh, what is actually the nature of the perfection of power and might shown? It's actually saying, no, I will, I will take it. I'm gonna, I'm so self confident that the expression of power is saying, I, I, I'm not gonna be. It's because it, it goes on to say, like timidity. It says, you, re, you rebuke temerity. Yeah. What does temerity mean? Actually, I thought it said timidity. Yeah, it so um, I'm gonna let's let's Tumeric, Tumeric, It's one of the. It's a spice, right? That you use. Temeric. Excessive nah. confidence or boldness, audacity. No one had the temerity to question his conclusions. Mm. You, so, rebuke to, you rebuke temerity. Yeah, which God is ex, yeah, which is excessive confidence or boldness. Yes, which is you rebuke that. You rebuke that because what his power is. Oh, his power. What it seems to be saying to me is his his strength is most potent when it is veiled. Mm. Which is pointing directly toward where the Gospels are taking us. But I mean, like you said, this is what Jesus takes on. God's most powerful moment is when Jesus, his power veiled, dies on the cross. Meekness. Meekness. Or Th- that's yeah. exactly what, the, that's how we define meekness. Isn't it amazing that as early as the wisdom books... 
this is already pointing ahead toward this. Because again, right. this is a people whose experience is, man, we're really beat down. We're stripped. We're humbled. We used to be powerful. We used to have strength. We used to have all this stuff. And now we have nothing. But perhaps God's power can be most shown through our weakness in this moment. Right. And listen, it says, and you taught your people by these deeds that those who are just must be kind. Mm. And you gave your children good ground for hope that you would permit repentance for their sins. Good ground. I mean, I, I, I don't think the Hebrew is saying, or the Greek rather, this is written in Greek, is saying good like land. But I, I, there, there's something about the way that this translation words it. You give your children good ground for hope. Right. I mean, I think, I think the Greek is saying you give your children good reasoning for hope. Right. But the fact that the English translates it into ground is significant because of the gospel and all the parables are agrarian about things oh. being in the ground that are hidden. So I don't think that's what the text is actually saying, but there's something in the translation that just strikes me about that. Which leads us in into the this, ground, yeah. hidden in the ground is actually this hope. Oh. Which I, th- I find compelling. Dude, I'm making Scooby sounds on that one, dog. Roro. <laughs> Which uh, the psalm, the psalm speaks to this, right? Um, and I, I, I again, I, I love to put the psalm. This, I, I, I don't think I've been doing it consciously, but I've, maybe I need to start. Maybe I have been doing it consciously, but for the last few weeks, months, even, I feel like I've been putting the psalm into the voices of the people in the first reading, <laughs> and it, it helps color everything in my mind. So I'm imagining, you know, these people in Israel who are doing their best to trust in the faithfulness of God, even though they've been stripped down and humbled and brought low and seemingly abandoned by God, putting the words of this psalm in those people's mouth, Lord, you are good and forgiving. You are good and forgiving to all, abounding in kindness to all who call upon you. Hearken, O Lord, to my prayer. Attend to the, to the sound of my pleading. All the nations you have made will come and worship you, O Lord, and glorify your name for your great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. They're saying all these things despite the fact that the world doesn't look that way. I know that you're good and forgiving, even though I don't feel that. You're abounding in loving kindness, even though I feel like I've been forgotten. You, you, you will hearken to the voice of my prayer, even though all I hear is silence. Right. All the nations are going to glorify you, even though all the nations seem like they're just out to get me. Mm. And they think that they're more powerful than we are. Mm. Because we've got this power that's hidden deep within. Because our power is not about us. Our power is the mustard seed of faith that God is actually working through. Mm. But I don't know, I, I, something about reading, and I don't know, I really don't think that theme of the first reading, and, and again, the psalm, is all that different than the times that we're living in. Because, I mean, think about what it means to be Catholic today. And I mean, I know the Catholic Church is really thriving in a number of ways, and there's so much fruit and so much life, but so much of the world just looks at us and just thinks we're a bunch of fools. You guys, you used to be this big, important uh, ecclesial body. You used to have influence in the world. You used to have some clout. And now you guys are just a joke with your archaic rules and your, your, you know, your backwards thinking and theology. You guys are nothing. The world looks at us as though we're a bunch of fools and your celibacy and your little churches and your, you know, your little holy books. You guys, you guys don't have the power. You guys don't have the strength. You, you don't know what real power is. And, and that really is the, exp- and yeah, granted, you know, I think when my grandparents were living as Catholics, that was a time in, at least in American history, when Catholics had power, right? And there was an influence in culture and they were, you know, the priest was put on a pedestal and the bishops, and maybe that was part of our downfall. It's because our heads got too big. Because I know that's a big part of Israel's downfall. They got a little bit too big for their britches and God allowed them to be brought low so that his power could be shown through it. And I do think that's what's happening in a certain sense to the church. He wants to remind us, no, 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 this is my church. 
Right. It's not your church. Which is which is interesting. Like um I look and the the radical the Catholics in America in the sixties got their first taste of, of with John F. Kennedy being in the White House of being invited to the table of power. Like mm, that's the, interesting. The, 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 somebody had given me a theory of that, and and that like because really, I mean, we had to start our own state because we were exiled from so many places. Utah. Wait, what podcast is this? <laughs> what state did we have to start? Maryland. Oh, I thought you meant during the time of Kennedy. No, like, no. Wait a second. No, no. The, I'm talking oh, yeah, yeah, historically. Yeah. Back you know, then, M- M- Maryland is is like like it was like right. oh no, we actually need a place to where we can just be Catholic and yeah. like Greeley. I, I grew up. I I, <coughs> I grew up um, during college in Greeley. <laughs> in a certain sense. In a certain sense. Fair enough. But Greeley was founded as a utopian society without Catholics because they said as soon as Catholics come around, and look at what happened to them. And and as soon as they let the Catholics come in, shut up, dude. I'm just. You're I such love. A, you're such. Punk. You don't, on, you don't love, love Greeley. Gre- whatever. I do. Dude. I. You have no idea the love I have for Greeley. Really? Yeah. My first years in Focus, our summer trainings were all in Greeley. I know. Man. I have a great. I have a deep affection in my heart for Greeley. It stinks. It stinks. smells physically. Yeah, it does. But yeah. I think I think God's. I think it was funny that it was the staging land for Focus, which was so transformative in the history of the Catholic Church Absolutely. within in the United States. I think the God's sense of humor is really funny because it's like Steubenville, Atchison, Greeley. Like, come on, Lord, send us to Santa Barbara. <laughs> Santa Barbara, <laughs> dude, I, dude. Amen, yeah. amen. Which is funny because it actually leads us into Romans. What we're talking about it's here, true. Actually, it says the Spirit comes to the aid of our weakness. <laughs> it does. Uh, yes. <laughs> For which is it's it's all really interesting how God likes to show His power in those ways that you're like that could only be of God. The, yeah. the, uh, one of the most spiritually transformative movements that exists comes out of these towns that are that are like nothing, that are humble and quiet. Which and, is so appropriate, though. And smelly. Because that's Nazareth. That's Nazareth. Right? That's Bethlehem. What good can come out of Greeley? You ask. <laughs> a great deal. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that, that's exactly like how God likes to do these really... This is the theme of the Gospels. Yes. <coughs> My voice cracked. Um, the, uh, I, I, I love that... Yeah, I don't know how this relates. I, I've just always been so taken by this passage. The spirit comes to the aid of our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we ought. This this idea that because it's I get it's really easy to get disheartened. We were just talking before the podcast about oh what what did we say? You said because we we you know we're Father Peter and I were just kind of whining about our own not whining but just talking about the things that are stressful for us and the things that we're just kind of struggling with and there's all these pressures and um, we kind of. We didn't spiral ourselves. We kind kind of this in this kind of bleak spot, and we're like, "All right, well, let's do the podcast now." <laughs> I know, it was really and you did funny. this opening prayer, like God, you know, let us let us um, have a good podcast despite our our sadness. Or what, what, what did you say? You're ba- like, basically, I said, I said, Lord, take away our, the anxiety that we have in our hearts. Or if this anxiety is from you, then let, let us podcast out of the that. anxiety. Yeah, yeah, like like let's give give us what what's really here, which is kind of beautiful because that's what's happening in these readings. The the, Ro- the book of Romans is saying, look, you have a bunch of anxiety, you don't feel like you even have the words to pray. That's fine. The spirit can actually pray on your behalf. You just have to entrust yourself to him. Right. And he'll actually do the rest. Right. It doesn't all rely on you. It's not all on your shoulders. And that's the trust I think that's being asked for in the first reading in the book of wisdom. Are you willing? Because what it's saying is if you just give yourself over to this truth, God will do the rest. 
But the simple act of giving yourself over to that truth is really difficult. Right. But if you can do that, even though you don't have strength, even though you feel powerless, even though you feel brought low and there's nothing good that you can produce, if you can give that to God, then the Spirit will take it from there. Right. But that's a challenging thing. This comes in, uh, in the book of Romans. There's this series of groanings that are there. It talks about us groaning. It talks about creation groaning out in travail. And then it talks about the spirit groaning on our behalf. It's the chapter eight is all about the groanings. There's mm. a lot of groaning going on, which I just kind of love because, again, sometimes I feel like my life is just a lot of like, oh, things are hard. And the day and age that we live in is just, oh, there's a lot of groaning. And right. scripture accounts for that. Yes. Groan out to God with that. And all of creation, in fact, is going to be groaning out to God in travail because we're experiencing the birth pangs. This is th this part of Romans gives this beautiful analogy that we are living within the labor of the new creation. Um, the fathers of the church gave this analogy. They said the hope that Jesus brought into the world is like childbirth. It's like a woman giving birth. And the analogy basically says when Jesus rose from the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, it was as if the water broke on a pregnancy. Mm. And if you know what happens in between the time the water breaks and the birth actually happens, there's a lot of ugliness in between. Yeah, and the church basically says that's the period in which you live. When Christ stepped out of the tomb, the water broke. The birth began. And when he comes again, the second coming, that birth will be complete. But in the meantime, we live in the midst of labor pains. God is reconstructing, resurrecting, transforming the entirety of creation. There's groaning, there's crying out because it hurts, because new life always entails pain. Right. But God is reshaping everything in his glorious image. And it's going to hurt a little bit. And you live smack in the middle of that. And sometimes all you can do is just give yourself over and say, God, I can't do this. You have to take over right. for me. And that's what Romans is saying. Yeah, he's going to take over with inexpressible groanings because God actually knows what you need more than you know what you need. Mm. Even when it's veiled from your eyes, even when it's hidden and you feel so brought low, he knows what you need. And if you just give yourself over to him, he's going to do the rest. Mm. It's just, it's, it's beautiful for me. I mean, that's kind of uh, depressing in a certain sense, but, but it's really comforting to me. Yeah, it, which is interesting because it, it gets us into the gospel and the worldview that's starting to be given that, that Jesus is doing in his parable here. Exactly right, which is a good segue. Like the, um, because that's the wild part of like every story. You guys always remember this. I mean, we were talking about Bible studies on Harry Potter. Every, mm. world, every story conveys worldview. Yes, absolutely. And so, so what's actually really interesting is that um, the J.J. Uh, uh, Abrams or whoever wrote Harry Potter, whatever. Her name <laughs> yes, was. it was J.J. <laughs> J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling. I know that. Um, she uh, uh, she was like, oh yeah. If she's like, she's like, you can totally predict exactly where this is going because yeah. uh, because of her belief in Jesus. Like she Harry, said that. Yeah, oh. absolutely. There was an interview, and she's like, wow. oh, oh yeah. She's like, if you didn't see where this is going, then. Wow. You're kind of missing some Western civilization here, yeah. Because it's all about the death and resurrection, and and like all, all these. It's really interesting because because Harry Potter is really meant to be a Christ figure. Oh, I only saw the first one. Yeah, it's okay. Sorry, man. I read all the books. Okay, so I know you did. I saw the first one. It's uh, not even Harry Potter, dude. I mean, dude, it is. Whatever. It's canonical. Are it's we okay. really gonna argue with? This? Yes, we are. <laughs> um, but what's interesting is that this, is that uh, that the worldview being conveyed here. Yeah 
And so we have this parable, you know, an enemy comes whole in. A whole series of parables. A whole series of parables. But the kind of, the, the big one oh, that, yeah, yeah, that gets it. explained is, gotcha. that, is that we have this, uh, the weeds and the wheat. The, the, an enemy comes and sows a bunch of, you know, Monsanto, uh, GMO, uh, you know. <laughs> Actually, you'll like this. We know exactly what he sowed. It was called, um, oh, what is it called? Millet? No. Uh, Darnel. Darnell. Darnel. D-A-R-N-E-L. Darnel. Darnel, which is actually, did you know that there was actually Roman laws that prevented something like this from happening? Because this was relatively common. People would go into, you know, their enemy or somebody else's field and sow this stuff called Darnel, um, which would sabotage your crops because it was like this invasive weed that would get entangled with everything else. And didn't the fruit of it like actually look like wheat, and but it was like poisonous? It, yep, exactly right. Yeah, and, and you, but you couldn't separate the two. Like I, I, there's these weeds in our garden at home that just, they wrap themselves around like they're so aggressive. They like wrap themselves around all the good stuff. And you're like, oh my gosh, I can't separate you. And that's why people would literally go around sabotaging things. So it was a Roman law that you couldn't do this because it was a common thing. It, because you can't get them apart. And the only thing, apparently the only thing that they're actually good for is tying them up in bundles for burning because they were a great heat source, which Jesus actually brings up. Yeah. <laughs> that's actually something you can do with them. And which, which is like, he goes and he starts to explain the parable and he says, you know what, the, the world, the field is the world. Yep. But then he actually talks about, he actually personalizes all of this, mm. which is kind of intense. I just got to say, like, um, for my contemporary ears, it's really hard for me to per- have this personalized by Christ. What, what specifically? He says the the good seed are the children of God, oh, yeah. and the bad seed are those who are of darkness. The, the children, children of, of the evil, evil one. one. Do you know who he calls the children of the evil one in the Gospels? No, the Pharisees. He sa- he calls them sons of Satan. Do you remember that? Mm. He actually calls them specifically that. And the first time that is actually mentioned is back in Genesis chapter three. Remember, Genesis chapter three already predicted this. It talks about the offspring of the evil one. Right? Yeah. In the, the proto-evangelium. So when the punishment for original sin is being given, he says that the serpent is going to have offspring. And the woman is also going to have an offspring. And they will have enmity between them. And that's the, the thing I'm struck by, the imagery of this. Because Genesis says, yeah, the serpent's going to have offspring, the sons of the children of Satan, who are going to do terrible things. The woman will have an offspring, the, the, the Christ figure, right? There's going to be enmity. But this actually speaks of the opposite of enmity. They're going to have enmity, but they're going to be actually intertwined in one another, inexplicably, or in uh, ex- extricably, in a certain sense. Is that interesting? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I There's, do. It's almost this, uh, it's not a contradiction, because I think the two can coexist, but you get this sense in Genesis that, oh, there's no space between them. But here in the gospel, he's like, actually, that enmity is going to look real close. <laughs> You're going to be real close to each other. Yeah, and, and that we're not, I'm not going to pull one from the other, lest we might actually lose the good fruit of Absolutely. one. Absolutely. Which is kind of which is kind of intense. Yeah. I have to say, like as far as worldview and how mm. we understand, it's it's helpful in a certain sense. Yes, because you say, well, the fruit looks similar, but one is poisonous and the other one isn't. Yes, and one is actually nourishing and actually able to be transformed. Yes, the other one will actually brings death. Yeah, but at the same, I mean, I think there's so many levels to this, and I've heard it. You know, so when I hear this at face value, I always think of. Okay, so there's the children of God, you know, there's the faithful ones, mm-hmm. and then there's the evil ones, the people, yeah, and I think of the people like in the church who are doing evil things and misleading people, and they're, we're stuck together. But I, I also think there's another level of this, and I've heard other people talk about this, that this also is coexisting inside of us. 
and there's good fruit and bad fruit even internally. Mm. Like it's happening in the church. I can yeah. look at that other guy and be like, oh yeah, you're one of the bad fruit. I'm the good fruit. Right. But then we forget that actually even inside of me, there's good fruit and there's these evil things that are, that are there and they're struggling with each other. And they're within me and they have to be rooted out. And what do I do with this even in my own life? But I mean, I think this gets really uh, intensely personal if you, if you see it right. Yeah, it does. Which, which just shows you how complex, complex we are as human beings, but also how complex the story of salvation history actually is. Because there's this concept. It's not just like, okay, here's the good guys, here's the bad guys. Bad guys are defeated, good guys win. Now it's more complicated than that because... We have the capacity. What is that? I, I'm, I've taken on in my prayer life that prayer from St. Philip Neri. Do you know that prayer, the prayer that St. Philip Neri prayed every morning? No. He prayed this prayer. Every morning, St. Philip Neri got up and he said, Lord, keep your hand on Philip today, because if you don't, Philip will betray you. And I just love the honesty of that. He's like, I know myself. And if you don't keep your hand on me, I'm going to betray you somehow. <laughs> so don't let me betray you. Right. But what an honest prayer. It's a really good prayer. Which just reminds us, no, I've got the capacity for the evil fruit in me as well. Right. And that's a good reminder because then it prevents us from simply looking at this parable or a parable like this and being like, oh, yeah, it's that guy. Look, I hate that guy. He's the evil fruit. Well, this because is... look at, and, and I, but look at even, <laughs> there's Pharisees among the 12 apostles. Right. Because to simply look at this, because Jesus calls the Pharisees the children of Satan. Right. And, and to think of that overly simply and say, well, oh, they're the bad guys. Here's the good guys. But no, look at Jesus' own ragtag group of folks. It's all the people who thought were either outcasts or useless or horrible or children of Satan or anything else. They're all actually brought into the church because the groanings of the spirit actually has the capacity to take it where we can't take it. Mm. And so even a Pharisee can actually become an apostle. Even a tax collector like Matthew, who's writing these things down, can become a children, a child of God. Mm-hmm. Because the, the, the second reading gives us the key to understanding all this. You can't actually root these things out yourself. You need the Holy Spirit to actually take over. Even if you can't articulate what you need rooted out, you need him to take over this. Because it's more complicated than it looks. Right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, because 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 uh, I mean, our temptation is the same temptation that exists within this parable: pull the weeds. Yeah. Right. But Just pull them out. Pull them burn out. Burn them up. Yeah, because we can see it starting to develop. But there's there's a complexity and and a willingness to parse out what really needs to be parsed out by God. Yes. And to take the time to actually do that. And I mean, I'll tell you, that's uh, you you. I look at farming, and it, it it's the volume is so intense. Hmm. So you say, how could I even possibly ever do that? How could I separate one from another? Right. And the Lord's like, no, this is actually the work that I'm going to undertake. Right. Because Without it, losing any of the good. Right. Because it'd be easy to be like, well, just, yeah, you're going to lose some of the good stuff. That's fine. It's worth it. But then you're reminded you got to counter this with something like the parable of the lost sheep. And like, no, 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 I'm not going to sacrifice any of the good. I'm not going to sacrifice that one sheep for the sake of the 99 others. I'm not going to sacrifice any of the good fruit for the sake of just getting rid of these weeds. I've got to protect it all, which is the whole, which is why... You know, is it St. Irenaeus? It, it, um, that which is not assumed is not redeemed. With Jesus, it's an all or nothing game. He came to redeem all of creation. Right. Not just come in and say, oh, here's the good stuff that I want. Here's all the crap that I don't care about. No, he is redeemed. This is why Romans is talking about these labor pains. 
because he's in the process of resurrecting all of it. And that's why we believe in something beautiful like purgatory, where we realize, no, there's a bunch of stuff that needs to be burned off of me before I am the person that God designed me to be fully. And praise be to God that he's got a purgation process, that he can purify me, that he can cleanse me through, through nothing of my own doing, but my willingness of giving myself over to him. He can purge me. Praise be to God for something like purgatory. Because right. then it means, oh, yeah, you can actually burn up the parts of me that ought not be there yeah. to make me clean. I just see this, and I just come back to wisdom. It says, and you taught your people by these deeds that those who are just must be kind, and you mm-hmm. gave your children good ground for hope that you would permit repentance for sins. So so that Jesus wanted this so real that he made it concrete in his <laughs> suffering Yeah, to say, I will, I will take the beating. I will accept that. I, I will do this so that you can say, Look, like the kindness, because that's the fundamental expression of the crucifixion, not guilt, not shame, not behavior control, but to say this is a fundamental kindness, just like we're talking about purgatory, just like what we're, what you're saying right here is that this, this is because I need something to ground me. I need some sort of reasonability to say that I can really hope. And speaking of ground, then what is the imagery of that action? It's to die on the cross to go into the ground to be buried so that like good fruit, he can rise again from the soil, from the ground right? as the good fruit, from the good ground that gives us hope, right? Right. The good ground for hope as wisdom says in my bad translation, but that you're like, oh, that is pure wheat. That is pure fruit. There is no weeds intertangled in that. So I can see what we're called to. I can see the model. And I can entrust myself to the Holy Spirit that I can become good fruit as well. Which is why why we actually, at the core of being Catholic, we have real wheat and water. <laughs> yeah. That's all that it is. Yeah. And real grapes crushed. Yeah. Like like pure pure things that are actually brought together that are reminding you that you have to plant stuff in the ground and it's yep. going to have to come up. It's just it like literally roots us. Yeah. And and says this worldview and this this parable is something that will never go away. Yeah. Ever. ever. Remember this at forever. Boom. Woo. You guys, thanks for joining oh. us in like a wonderful 16th Sunday in ordinary time reflection on these scriptures. And indeed. A shout out to my friend Craig, Craig. who um who is totally awesome and awesome. who recommends his podcast. He works at a Catholic school, oh, a friend shucks. from high school. And uh, thanks, and, Craig, and the priests that work with him. Thanks, and, priests, and Shannon, and my friend Mark. Thanks, Shannon, and his and Mark. wife Sam. All my all my peeps from high school that I got so, to hang out with it was super fun. So many peeps, man. Ah, oh, that's great. Well, we will be back next week. Yep. Uh, keep us in prayers, and we'll see you then. Okay. Bye. Bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www lankyguys.org. See you next week.